if you were confident of your safety, how would that change your life? If you were certain of your safety, how would that change your speech? If you were convinced that you were finally safe, how would that change your words and deeds? This morning we have the the privilege of studying Psalm 57. And in this psalm, David, he flees to a cave. But ultimately he finds refuge in God. Very little of David's circumstances had changed in that cave. The, The dangers were still real and present, but he was safe. He was safe under the arms of God. And that that changed David. It it changed what David would say and do. And I pray today that the Lord would give us the grace to gather under His wings and take refuge in Him, to believe that we are only safe and sound in Him. And I pray that our confidence, certainty, and conviction that we are safe in God would lead to an exchange that we would exchange silence for a song of praise. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 57. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 477. And when you get there, be sure to take a look at the ascription of the psalm. The ascription is set off by uh, the small but paradoxically paradoxically capitalized typeface. Many psalms have an ascription, and some of them, they tell us the author, the situation, and the purpose of the psalm itself. This is what we have in Psalm 57's ascription. Here it is. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So from the ascription, we learn that this psalm was to be used in corporate worship, We also learned that it's set to the tune, Do Not Destroy. Uh, This tune was used for other psalms as well. If you just look over to Psalm 58 and 59, you'll see it's used in connection with those psalms. Um, We do this kind of thing with hymns all the time, actually. We will use the same tune for just different hymns, different words that we'll sing. Anyway, with a name like Do Not Destroy, uh, we already have a sense that this psalm is going to be weighty, don't we? Uh, The tune title itself is a plea. Like Psalms 56 and 58, Psalm 57 is a miktam of David. We don't know for certain what a a miktam is, but the prevailing notion among biblical scholars uh, is that it's probably a kind of musical term. The the footnote of your Bible likely says uh, as much. The term itself means to cover. And that accords well with David's desire for refuge in God, which we find there in verse 1. This description It also tells us the situation or the circumstance which gave rise to this psalm. It was when David fled from Saul and hid in the cave. And there are two occasions in which David hid in a cave from Saul. The first was in 1 Samuel 22, and the second was two chapters later in 1 Samuel 24. I'm persuaded that we're looking at the occasion related to 1 Samuel 22. And here's why. The psalms themselves, they are purposefully arranged Uh, And and because that's the case, if you look at Psalm 56, the one just before our psalm, you'll notice that the ascription, it mentions that it was written when the Philistines seized David in Gath. That happened at the end of 1 Samuel 21. And 1 Samuel 22 then opens with David hiding in a cave. So it seems to me that this, and this is the position of most scholars, that just as the events of 1 Samuel 22 followed 1 Samuel 21, 
Uh, so the Psalms are likely following just that same path here in this section of the Psalter. We need to begin to unpack this event uh, when David fled from Saul and hid in the cave. It's going to shape the way we think about this psalm. So we want to go back in our Bibles. We're going to turn back for just a moment. Keep one finger here, but go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 22. Um, that's on page 245 of the Bibles provided. 1 Samuel 22. Now, the books of Samuel are about the exaltation of God as king through exalting his earthly king. Early in the book, we, we meet the ruling judge Samuel. But Israel complains, and they, they want a king just like all the other nations. And so, Saul is anointed as king. And he's the reigning king in the book. But he's not the right king. The, the right king is David. And he has been anointed as the next king of Israel. So he's the king in waiting. And that's the promise that he's received from God, that he's going to be king one day. David's exaltation to the throne occurs through his humiliation. Saul has a sense of David's coming rise. And so he viciously drives David out of his house. Though David has been declared to be the right king for Israel, David himself, he refuses to claim his rights to the throne. Over and over again in the books of Samuel, we see that David trusts God, that God will bring about his purposes at his right time. And verse 2 of our Psalm 57, we're going to see David trusting God to fulfill his purposes. Saul, he chases David all across Israel and eventually out of Israel, right into enemy hands. David escapes from the Philistines by acting like a madman and he's forced to go and hide in a cave. And needless to say, this is, um, this is not a high point in David's life. So here's what happened in that cave. Read 1 Samuel 22, just verses 1 and 2. David departed from there and escapes to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So we see here, David, he sought refuge in the cave of Adullam. He was soon surrounded by family, for their lives were likely in danger too. He was later surrounded by those in distress and debt and discontent or bitter in soul, as our translation puts it. That's not a bad description for the church, is it? If we're really honest about what kind of people we are, right? We're going to admit that we're the outcasts and orphans of society. And isn't it kind of our Savior to gather us to His side and lead us on? Well, David, he gathers about 400 men. And while 400 men is nothing to sneeze at, uh, that number is small compared to a king with an army at his disposal. David is in danger, and his flight to this cave is what gave rise to Psalm 57. So with this background in mind, let's turn back to Psalm 57. So turn back to Psalm 57. If, you, if your finger slipped out for some reason, uh, that's on page 477 of the Bibles provided. Read Psalm 57 now. We begin with the ascription. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. 
till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Now if you take a look at verses 5 and 11, you see verses 5 and 11, you'll notice that they are the same. And they serve as something as a refrain or even a chorus. They give us a clue to the structure of the psalm. There are two movements, each followed by a refrain. We're going to unpack the psalm under its own structure. And here are the headings that we'll use as we investigate its two movements. Safe and sound. Safe is the heading for verses 1 to 5. And that's because David seeks refuge, safety in God. And sound is the heading for verses 6 to 11. Because David purposes to sing and make melody. To sound God's praises among the nations. And that's really the whole point of the psalm too. We have a safe refuge in our God. And our song of praise for His steadfast love and faithfulness ought to ring out among the nations. Let's take a look at the psalm's first movement and our first point, safe. Follow along as I read Psalm 57 verses 1 to 5 again. Verses 1 to 5. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. So the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Remember having fled to a cave for refuge from Saul's sword, David flees to the Lord for his soul's safety. He urgently pleads for mercy, for grace, for compassion of God. He says, Lord, have compassion upon me in my peril. Do something about my situation. David's situation, it's fraught with danger, isn't it? Notice the language he chooses. There at the end of verse 1, he says that he's facing storms of destruction. Look at verse 3. He needs to be saved. He's being trampled upon. He needs God to send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 4. 
David tells us his soul is in the midst of lions. He lays down amid fiery beasts. His enemies have teeth like spears and arrows, and their tongues are like swords. David's description is as one who feels hunted and haunted and hemmed in on every side. David has found a cave for refuge. But his true refuge is not the cave, is it? I mean, his safety is not the stronghold of the cave, is it? He doesn't cry out to the cave for mercy. His soul doesn't take refuge in the cave. His ultimate safety and refuge is in God. It's in hiding under the shadow of Yahweh's wings. It's an image we've seen before in the Psalms. In Psalm 91, verse 4 says this, He will cover you, speaking of God, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. The image in Psalm 91 and in our psalm is simple. God is here depicted like a a great bird who protects His young under His wings. This is at one and the same time an, an image of strong protection and gentle and loving affection. It's a strong idea in the sense of this image of a mother bird protecting her young from a predator. And we all know that you, you don't mess with the young when mom is around, right? There are, there are reasons we use phrases like mama bear. Uh, it, Hebrew, it's, it's not so much mama bear, it's mama bird. That's the imagery that the Hebrew scriptures give us. And this language of, of hide me in the shadow of your wings, it's also deeply affectionate. Who, who can forget the, the, the loving language that emerges in that beautiful book of Ruth? Right when, when Ruth, in chapter 3, verse 9, Ruth tells Boaz to spread his wings over her. She says, Bo, right, hide me in the shadow of your wings. David is seeking safety for his soul under the wings of God. The God who is deeply affectionate for his people and is a strong protector of them. This wing imagery Jesus picks up in the Gospels, we read it earlier from Luke's Gospel, But this image also emerges in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 37, in distress, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Jesus is very much picking up on this imagery, this idea. And He's saying, I'm your shelter. The people of Jerusalem, they did not place their faith in Jesus. They did not come under the shelter of His wings. And so Jesus knew that they were open to harm. You might have made it to the stronghold of a cave, but that doesn't mean you're safe. You might hunker down, but that doesn't mean you're safe. You, you might hide behind, but that doesn't mean you're safe. You might hold an arm's length of distance, But that doesn't mean you're safe. These all might be wise things to do. It was wise for David to find a cave and get out of Saul's sight. But David's creativity, his carefulness, and his caution cannot keep him safe. Only God can. And that is why we flee to Him for protection. That's why we place our lives in His hands. We should certainly live wisely and carefully in this world. But we cannot eliminate all risk. We cannot create ultimate safety. Brothers and sisters, be very careful not to trust in the world's horses and chariots. Money, fame, science, rulers, 
legislators, justices, journalists, and military might. They're neither objective nor neutral. They're all tainted by the fall. And apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, they are naturally opposed to the things of God. Our trust in these individuals and institutions today is akin to Israel's sinful trust in Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria for protection. We cannot find ultimate safety in creation or in creatures, but only in the Creator, only in the covenant God. God alone is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. God alone is pure wisdom, benevolent power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we must take refuge in the name of the Lord our God. So what are, what are the storms of destruction that you are waiting to pass by? What is the situation that your soul needs to find safety in God? Maybe you're facing storms of, of family or marriage or work conflict or maybe all three. Maybe you're facing the storms of the fragility of human life. The storms of the virus and its potential threat. The storms of wayward children. The storms of wayward parents. The storms of health trials. The storms of anxiety and fear. The storms of financial burden. The storms of loss and grief. The storms of loneliness, the storms of social upheaval and unrest, the storms of joblessness, the storms of chronic pain. Receive the comfort of this psalm. These storms, they will pass by. Did you see that in verse 1? What wonderful words, until they pass by. These storms will not last forever. Receive the comfort of this psalm. Rest in Christ our refuge until these storms pass by. Keep trusting and hiding in Him. In these storms, make Christ your refuge and recognize that God does have a purpose to fulfill in these storms. You see what David says there in verse 2? He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Here is the right king of Israel entrusting himself to God most high. Saul is pretty high. He's higher than David right now. But Saul is not God most high. And David places his trust in God most high and in his purposes. David is being hunted by the reigning king. He's really the right king. And we know that because he's been anointed. But David, he could not assume the throne. He had to trust God to fulfill His purposes out, to, to work them out in His time and in His plan. David had to learn obedience through suffering. David had to learn that he could not judge the Lord by his feeble or fallen sense. And instead, he had to trust God for His grace. David had to learn to believe and trust that behind this frowning providence, like running for your life from a madman and hiding in a cave, Behind this frowning providence that God still hid a favorable face. God was David's protection. And God had a purpose for David's pain. He was making him a commander and king who could sympathize with a people in distress. David could lead God's people from a place of understanding and compassion because he had been there too. He too was despised and rejected and acquainted with grief. Wouldn't you want a ruler like that? 
Wouldn't you want a leader like that? One who could understand and sympathize with you in your suffering and in your pain and in your sorrow. Let us learn here that safety in God does not mean we will escape suffering. David was safe in God's care, but he was undergoing suffering. Especially in our current environment, we must not make the false equation that safety equals comfort. Safety does not necessarily equal comfort. We are safe in God and sometimes in His wise providence, we will still suffer. But we can be assured that through life's fearful path, He will hold us fast. David was certain of this. He trusted in God's protection. He could even lie down in the midst of lions. Men who were like lions and fiery beasts. Did you notice that about verse 4? Verse 4 is not only a description of what surrounds David, but it's a description of what he actually does. He actually lies down. It is what he has to do every day. It's what our Savior had to do. Jesus had to lie down and sleep with demons and unclean spirits constantly confronting him in his ministry. Jesus had to lie down and sleep with the religious leaders constantly seeking to trap him and take his life. David so trusted in God's protection that he put his head down in that cave. David trusted in God's protection and he trusted in God's providential purpose. It's one thing to say that God has a purpose. It's another thing to live in the grain of God's purpose. To say in the words of Ephesians 5.20, I give thanks always and for everything. I give thanks always and for everything. That's what it looks like to live in the grain of God's providential purposes for us. I am willing to let God fulfill His purpose in me because I know that He is working all things together for my good. That's what He's told me. That's what He's promised He's doing. And David seems to be doing just that. He is accepting rather than rejecting God's providence. He, he prays. He certainly prays for God's providence, that God's providence would change His circumstance. We can make that prayer. But until that time, David trusts that God is fulfilling His purpose. How, how do you live in the grain of God's purposes when it seems filled with so much pain. You can only do that when you remember and trust God's promises. Remember, hiding in the background of Psalm 57 is the promise that God made to David through Samuel that he would one day be king. This is why David seems to confidently say there in verse 3, he, and notice the wills, right? He will sin from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear those wills? David believes God will do it. He will keep his promises. David believes that the God who called him is faithful and he will do it. David is certain that he's ultimately safe. David is confident that this cave, it's not his end. Because the God of heaven and earth has promised he will reign as king. He knows that Yahweh is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Yahweh's love can never fail because Yahweh can never fail. Yahweh's promises can never fail. He will not let our souls be lost. His promises shall last. You know, brothers and sisters, it strikes me that we are in a place like David in the cave. We are living in between the promises of God and the complete fulfillment 
of the promises of God. We've been promised a home in glory, but we're not home yet. We will reign with Christ, but that reign has not been fully consummated. We live amidst souls and lions. We live in a world of malicious mouths and tyrannical tongues. Week in, week out, we gather as the distressed, as the indebted, as the discontent. And we remember together that Jesus Christ is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Week in and week out, we remember that God is protecting us, fulfilling His purposes in us, preserving us and preparing us to finally reign with Christ. And because that is our sure and certain hope, because we are confident that God will do what He promised, because we are confident that God will yet again send His Son from heaven to save us, we can say with David, Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. How else do we sing that refrain but in faith that God will do what He promised? How else do we sing that refrain but in faith that we are truly safe in the hands and in the heart of God? This refrain or this chorus, it's serving double duty. It's both prayer and praise. Notice the language of be exalted and let your glory. These are actually positive admonitions. Right? They are imperatives directed toward God. The psalmist wants God, he's telling God to exalt himself and to display his glory throughout the earth. Why? It would certainly be enough to say that God should exalt himself because he's worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. He deserves to be glorified for His glorious character. He deserves to be proclaimed as great because of His loving and faithful character. But the reality that this is prayer and praise drives deeper our understanding of what David is asking for. This is a prayer in the sense that for God to be exalted would mean for David to be rescued and for salvation to come. It is praise For it is a worshipful declaration of what is rightly due to God. The exaltation of God and the exaltation in God from all of creation. So we pray this psalm asking Yahweh to be merciful to us in our present distress. We tell Him, my soul takes refuge and in you alone. In faith I I hide my soul under the shadow of your wings. Sustain me until the storms of destruction pass by or you call me home. We pray this psalm offering ourselves into His hands as a living sacrifice, pleading with God to fulfill His purposes for us. We live this psalm by positioning our hearts to move with Him in the grain of His providence. And we live this psalm by remembering that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ will come again. And because of His steadfast love and faithfulness, our God, He has sent His Son from heaven to save us. Jesus has trampled upon the one who has trampled upon us. And we pray for our God to send His Son from heaven yet again. We pray for Jesus to come and be exalted and that His final glory would stretch over all the earth. And in that day, we will be relieved of our distress. David, he was safe in the refuge of God. And we are safe in the refuge of Christ. 
David was safe, but he would not be silent. And we shouldn't be silent either. Our certain safety should lead to our speaking, to making a sound of thanks and praise to our God. So let's turn and consider our second point, sound. And consider the sound that David purposes to make. In response to God's steadfast love and faithfulness, David purposes to sing to the Lord. Follow along now as I read Psalm 57, verses 6 to 11. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 6 is in some ways a transition point, turning point in the psalm. Have the storms passed by? Those seeking David's life, those who set a net and dug a pit, David says, have fallen into it themselves. Either David believes that this is what will happen to his enemies, or it actually has happened to his enemies. Both could be true. David, being so certain of God's promises to him, that the promise that he will be king could be stating his confidence in, in, in the language of a thing having already been accomplished. The, the reversal of my situation is so certain to come to pass that I'm going to talk about it as if it has already happened. That's what the, the Latin fans among us call a fata accompli, a thing already accomplished. Or it's possible that David is looking back on what God has done, having already accomplished the resolution of his distress by turning the tables on his enemies. I tend to think that this is probably a statement of faith and certainty, David's statement of faith and certainty, before really the resolution of his crisis. And here's why. David declares that his heart is steadfast. It's almost as if he's preaching to himself, right? He's, he's preaching to himself. Stay the course, David. Keep trusting in your refuge, David. Uh, keep your heart steadfast and unmoved, David. Keep your heart hoping in the promises of God, David. And notice the I wills there, verses 7, 8, and 9. They, they mirror, really, the I wills of, of God, and the, 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 the wills of God in the previous section. Um, verse 7, I will sing and make melody. Verse 8, I will awaken the dawn. Verse 9, I will give thanks to the Lord among the people. I will sing praises to you among the nation. David believes that his refuge will resolve his crisis. And so he will sound off on God's steadfast love and faithfulness. David is purposing to praise God. Let's think about this same thing from a slightly different angle. David proclaims that his heart is steadfast. You see that there in verse 7. Which is to say that it cannot be moved. It will not be moved from certainty. David is resolute, firm, and unwavering. We know this because he proclaims that his heart is steadfast. Not just once, but twice. He's trying to underscore it. He's repeating it for emphasis. And still, what does this mean? Apparently, it means that he's going to sing. 
He's going to sing and make music. He's going to use every instrument at his disposal to make music to the praise of God. He's going to use his voice, his musical talents and musical instruments to proclaim the majesty of God. Well, let's remember that this is it's poetic language. And David's piling up ideas on top of one another. So that we come to understand that his heart is full of praise to God. We see this culminating really in the idea that he will awaken the dawn. David can't awaken the dawn. He can't make the sun rise with all of his joyful musical noise. But that's not exactly the point. The point is that his heart is so steadfast, so joyful, and so fixed on praising God, that in effect his praise ushers in a new day. The troubles or storms of yesterday are passing and will one day pass completely. And in this David rejoices and gives thanks. David will praise the Lord before the storms have passed by. And we should do the same. David purposes to give thanks to the Lord. And not just among the people of Israel, but among the peoples, you see that, of the world. So verse 9 is communicating through the parallelism of giving thanks to the peoples and singing praises among the nations, the Gentiles. Not only should the people of Israel know and worship and honor, bring glory and blessing to God, but the whole earth and all the peoples of the earth should know that David's praise is directed to David's God. Why? Why should David praise God with his whole heart and mind and strength? Why should the whole world know that thanks and praise is due to God? David tells us why with the very first word of verse 10. For. For. That word for signals to us that David's about to tell us the reason that his heart is steadfast. The reason that he praises God with his whole being. And the reason that his praise will proclaim God's glory among the nations. David's heart is steadfast because of the steadfast love of the Lord. David's heart is overflowing with faithful praise because of the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. Just consider for a moment the steadfast love of the Lord through the history of the people of Israel. From slavery in Egypt to the Exodus, from the Exodus to the exile, and through the exile to the restoration, God was good to His people. His love endures forever because He endures forever. He has always loved His people and He will keep loving His people with a never stopping, never giving up love. Just as this was true for the Old Testament people of God, so this is true for the New Testament people of God. Brothers and sisters, think on your lives for a moment. Has not God been faithful to you over the whole course of your life? Has anything or anyone ever separated you from His love? Has tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Neither can death nor life nor angels nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if that is true, and it is, then aren't we really safe? 
Aren't we really, truly, fully, finally, and ultimately safe? Then can we really remain silent? God's steadfast love is great. His faithful love, His firm commitment to His people is unmoved. Nothing can break His commitment to us. It reaches to the clouds and above the heavens, verse 10. And this idea reminds us of the extent of God's love and faithfulness. His love and faithfulness to, can extend beyond what we can see. There is no end to His love and faithfulness. And with all of this in view, we can see why David proclaims there in verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. The ground of our assurance and conviction is in the character of God Himself. We can refuse to be tossed about by the storms of culture. We can refuse to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Children, youth, young adults, doesn't this sound like a God worth serving? This world of, is, is full of disappointments and hopes deferred. Friends move or change. A schooling environment suddenly shifts. Coaches uh, let you down. So many things disappoint. This is sadly what often comes in a world full of sin. So put your trust in the one who never changes. The one whose steadfast love for his people never comes to an end. Talk with your parents or a mature Christian friend about how their lives are different because of the steadfast love of the Lord. That would be a great conversation to have this afternoon. David says that his heart is steadfast because of God's steadfast love. Christian, I wonder if you feel like you've got this steadfast heart like David's. Think back on this past week. Do you feel like you were knocked around a bit? Reflecting on my week, there were certainly moments where my heart was knocked around. My heart was not perfectly unmoved or resolved, resolute, resistant. The temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we're honest, I think we'll all admit that our hearts are not always fully steadfast in the Lord. Which is why I so appreciate what the psalmist, what David teaches us here. We, we do not simply say to ourselves, well, I've got to do better next week. No. We don't just say, I've got to do better next week and then lean on our own understanding. No, we, we look to the steadfast love of the Lord. In our moments of struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we look to the steadfast love of the Lord. We remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that His mercies never come to an end, and that they're new every morning because great is His faithfulness. In those moments of trouble and trial, we remember the steadfast love of the Lord. We ask for His mercy and grace and help in time of need. We ask the Lord to give us a steadfast heart and even to use the trial and the temptation that we are facing to fashion within us a steadfast heart. Let's also pray that the Lord would give us opportunities to proclaim His steadfast love among the nations. Let's pray that God would provide us with opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with those who don't know Him. I don't know about you, but this is one of my regular prayers for our congregation. That the Lord would be pleased to use our church to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ.
that the Lord would be pleased to use us to make disciples and see new believers come into the kingdom. Let's pray that the Lord would provide us with meaningful and natural opportunities to give thanks to the Lord among the peoples of our workplaces and neighborhoods and communities. And it's really quite simple. We just give thanks to the Lord. When a coworker, a friend, a family member says something positive and encouraging about your work or your labors or your life, you say, I'm so grateful to God for His kindness and giving me strength and grace to accomplish that or to do that in me. That's telling them about the Lord. And perhaps the Lord will use that to open up a conversation further about Him. Let's pray that the Lord would provide us these opportunities and let's be bold to give thanks to Him that we'd bring others into the way of God's goodness and grace through our conversation. Let's pray that the Lord would bring unbelievers to faith in Christ, the one who fulfills this psalm Himself. If David could describe his condition in the stark terms found in this psalm, we shouldn't think that Jesus' condition was any less severe. Through Psalm 57, we see that David was a type and a shadow of the reality and substance that was to come in Jesus Christ. How do you consider that the whole character of Jesus' life was one of suffering and sorrow? What David was experiencing and feeling in that cave was what his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, experienced and felt throughout the whole course of his life. And yet, unlike David's sorrows, Jesus carried an additional weight, for he was perfectly holy. He was perfectly sinless. He was perfectly righteous. Like David, Jesus was hunted by an armed guard. He had with him a collection of bedraggled disciples. Instead of a dark cave, imagine a dark garden. And imagine our Savior contemplating not merely the slanderous storms of the religious leaders that had come and would come again, but the storm of God's eternal wrath. Imagine our Savior praying and entrusting Himself to the will of God the Father. Imagine Him praying, Thy will be done. Or in the words of verse 2, Fulfill your purposes in me. Our Lord Jesus knew what the Scriptures said. He knew what they taught. He knew that the Scriptures must be fulfilled. He knew that He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus knew that He would have to face men with teeth as as sharp as spears and tongues as sharp as swords. Jesus knew that He would have to face mouths that mocked and maligned Him. And the irony is that while His opponents set a trap for Him, they were the ones who fell into it. Verse 6. Do you remember what Caiaphas, the high priest, said in John chapter 11? Remember, they were plotting to kill Jesus. The leader of the council, he stood up and said this, It is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The goal was to trap Jesus and offer Him as a sacrifice to save the nation. But that's what Jesus came to do. That was His mission. To die for the sins of many. And amazingly, like David, Jesus' heart was steadfast through his rejection and suffering and death. He took refuge and trusted in his Father all the way through his life to the point of his death. Like David crying out to God Most High, Jesus' last words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And shortly after his death, Jesus was laid in a cave. Three days after His death, God the Father would send the Spirit from heaven 
and raised Jesus from the dead. This trap of evil men was God's plan all along, and they fell right into it. What was it that Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24? Peter said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter said that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Caiaphas and the religious leaders set a trap for Jesus, but they fell into it. They sought to bring Jesus low in his death. But it was how God would ultimately lift up his son. Jesus' humiliation was God's path to his exaltation and our salvation. And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that you are not safe. You are not safe. Standing outside of Jesus Christ, you are standing in the path of God's wrath. It is a wrath far more terrible than Saul and any earthly man and more terrible than physical death. Here's why. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all lived our own way. We've sought the satisfaction of our flesh. We've loosed our tongues for evil. We've murdered others in our hearts through anger. This is what we've all done. It's sin and it's rebellion against the God who made us. It's living against the grain of His purposes for us. And it carries with it the cost and consequence of eternal death. And on the day of judgment, there is no cave on this earth or in this universe that you can hide in that will be a refuge from God. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. And the good news of Psalm 57 and the Bible is that God gladly receives those who take refuge in Him. We take refuge in God by trusting in His Son. Jesus is the one that God sent from heaven to save His people. We take refuge in Jesus by turning from our sin and placing our faith in Him, believing that He lived and died and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus, He gladly gathers the spiritually distressed to His side. He saves them. And then, He leads them in a chorus of praise to God the Father among the nations. So friend, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus and join Him in that chorus of praise. As we conclude, brothers and sisters, I want us to think about our calling not only to be those from the nations who declare the glory of God, but those who take God's glory to the nations. If we really believe that we are safe in God, then we must make some kind of sound. Silence. Silence may betray some sneaking fear that we're not really safe. Or, silence may be an indication that we have a refuge other than God. And if that's the case, then we repent and we flee to God for refuge. We pray for the grace to make His name known. Brothers and sisters, if we are indeed safe, if we are indeed eternally secure, if God is indeed fulfilling His purpose in us, if God will indeed turn the traps of the world upon them on the last day, if God will not let us be put to shame, then we cannot be silent. 
If the God of Psalm, uh, of Psalm 57 is merciful, as David says, if God is a refuge, if God is most high, if God is sovereignly fulfilling His purposes, if He is the one who sends salvation from heaven, if He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, if He is exalted above the heavens, and if He is glorious, if this is our God, then we are safe. May we not be silent.